0: Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Pastor John Jay, the lead pastor here. It's really good to see you all on continuing worship together. I've got a teaching I'm going to share with you today. First, I do want to just acknowledge that you're here. And you had a lot of other places you could have been today, including just staying home where at least you understand the germs that are present in your life. And... It's, it's a thing to, like, gather in sort of communal spaces right now. There's a lot of cultural anxiety about doing so. And I just want to say, uh, outside of the, like, you may not want to shake hands or hug today as much, you may just want to elbow bump or, like, curtsy, if you know how to curtsy. Curtsy is the full-on bow, that's right, like, with the... Anyway... <laughs> less germs are shared that way but just being here i think says something about our willingness to stay connected to one another even in the midst of a lot of anxiety about needing to pull apart because we want to keep each other safe um so thank you for sharing this next hour together we are going to talk about gluttony this morning and normally we have like all of these drawings that i've done doodled up on the screen but we're gonna do things a little bit different today Uh, so let me just tell you how this is going to go so you're not disoriented the whole time uh, we're going to have three small reflections across our teaching uh, with scripture and then communion in between those to kind of break up the flow. We've been talking about the seven vices or the seven deadly sins for the last like four weeks or so. And today we're on gluttony. Next week we're going to talk about sloth where uh, Ken Fong is going to be our preacher for the Sunday, which I'm super excited about. And then the last one is envy or covetousness. But gluttony is today. And I'm reminded and I don't know if I've said this to you all, but these sins, uh, they they aren't exactly like delineated in Scripture. Like there's not a verse in First Corinthians that says this, 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 and this. These are the seven to watch out for. They're sort of gathered over time by the tradition. And in fact, they are very specifically the sort of temptations present in the life of like the desert. The desert fathers and mothers are these folks who sort of fled uh, large cities, and moved into these very different kinds of spaces. Uh, these are also the sins of the monastery, which are sort of gatherings of people committed to uh, a certain practice of faith, or the cloister environment. <clears throat> these are the sins most present in the wilderness. And so gluttony today is one that I th- I think we all kind of know what it means, and we, or we think we know what it means. Typically it means to overeat which is the smallest, most narrow, and anemic understanding of what gluttony might mean for our own flourishing or lack thereof. So I'm going to attempt to break this up a little bit for you uh, today. But first, I want to say what today begins for a lot of us. Today is the season, the first Sunday of Lent. Lent is the season in the church calendar that prepares us for Easter. Uh, and so if you are the kind of person that typically comes to church on two services a year. Those would be like Christmas service and Easter Sunday. You need to know that the moments when we arrive there take some preparation. Uh, For instance, today, we'll say this again later on, but today is uh, Pastor Gretchen's birthday. She turns 50 today, right? And there are like a series of different kinds of celebrations that she gets to be a part of today, but they took preparation. It's not like we just decided today on this high holy holiday of Gretchen patron saint from boston uh but but there are preparations we had to do to get ready for celebrating well easter is the same kind of way you don't just arrive at easter and You're and like oh great hope has burst upon the scene and we are all ready to lean into it it takes preparation the same thing with christmas we have the season of advent it's like a whole month four sundays where we say are we quite ready for what it means for god to show up in our world in like this very visceral flesh and blood kind of way Usually not, and so we take time and focus our attention. So today is a bit of focusing our attention using this lens of food, of eating, of hungers, and of desires. So one of the practices that a lot of people have for Lent, we'll just ask the question, or call the question, does anybody have a practice they are taking up for this Lenten season, either of like fasting or uh, taking something out of your life or adding something into it? Just a show of hands. You don't have to say what it is, but th- that it is. yeah okay so look around if you saw a hand up maybe ask that person what it is what their practice is going to be uh for myself i i'm really bad at rituals and practices and um patterns and so but this year i'm trying something where each day uh it's sort of you you've probably heard of it as like intermittent fasting where you don't eat for like 16 hours but you can eat within an eight hour window and for me i love food like just i really adore food um Having no food for that long, it makes me feel crazy. It makes me feel not just hungry, but like hangry is the official word for it. I get mean. All of my demons, they—it's like feeding them to not have food for that length of time, which is kind of, it's kind of the point. So fasting has always been about removing something so that we can focus the more intention on this other something. Fasting awakens, for me at least, and and for those of you who practice this, a kind of ache or hunger or desire. It doesn't quell it. It, in fact, ignites it. But with intention for me to discover what it is I might not have known if I just continually satiated whatever desire I had. This kind of hunger that often leads to gluttony, I think, is sort of at at the beginning of lots of sins. Food, or our relationship with food, is really our relationship to all of creation. We don't think this way when we think about eating anymore because we don't like break the bread of creation, to use the language of Wendell Berry. I don't know, for instance, this loaf of bread for communion. Who, Which kind of person is responsible for this loaf? Pastor Gretchen, um, did you bake this braided loaf of bread and did not harvest the wheat that's inside of it or, or the sugar? Do you know the person who made it? No. Where did it get, come from? from Vons. Uh, and Mr. Vons baked the bread. Um, and we actually, in, we bought this with some amount of intention. Is it the right kind of bread? Does it break in the right kind of way? Uh, this is a heightened level of attention to detail with food, and yet still it is so divorced from our connection with how this thing got here. We just don't know what our food means anymore as much as we used to. Food The desire, hunger, and all those sort of things has been like a sort of a primal part of who we are for a long, long time. The first instance of a bad thing that happens in Scripture is in Genesis 3. And it's the story of like our primal relatives known as Adam and Eve, Adam from the ground, and Eve is the word for life. So these sort of primal humans, they get hungry. And there's one thing that they're not supposed to eat. And the trickster shows up and says, you can have that thing. It's fine. If you're hungry, you should eat. You should have whatever it is that you want in this moment. And so they take and they eat. Since their eyes are open to, to everything, which, by the way, my eyes cannot handle being open to everything all at once. It's just too much. I don't know how to attend to that much world all at once. And so the story starts to collapse. And it collapses into violence and into deception and ultimately into fracturing of relationships. This is what we would call like the fall or original sin, but really it's taking what is a natural hunger and desire and twisting it at the source, redirecting it toward broken or deadly ends. This is what gluttony does. And the first bad thing is a form of disordered eating. Early on in the New Testament, in the story of Jesus, four stories of Jesus in the New Testament Four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of these communities write what we call a gospel or a story of the good news. And and in those, there's the story of the temptation of Christ. It's a pretty well-understood story. Jesus is baptized, sort of affirmed by the heavens, by God, this voice that says, like, here is my son, really pleased, I'm really happy with this one. And then the spirit drives Jesus into the wild places into the wilderness and we know what resides in the wilderness that's where the vices are born it says he fasted or he didn't eat for 40 days the text says that he was famished super hungry and right at that time right when you're super famished it's always what happens you get hangry or you get sinful or you get whatever the thing might be and this, the Satan shows up, the tempter, the evil one, and begins this series of three temptations. And what is the first temptation? Somebody. Bread. It's food, right? So hungry, Jesus? You have the power. Just to say something to these rocks and turn them into bread. Jesus resists and answers back like there's more to following God than just bread, there's something else happening here in the wilderness. The temptation when hunger strikes. And when I say hunger, I don't simply mean the thing we feel in our stomach. I mean the thing we feel deep in our gut. The thing that makes us most vulnerable to the world. And really, for me, being hungry or having these desires, it's the thing that opens me in a way that I often hate. Because that means I need something. It means I'm not self-sufficient on my own. And so... Anything I can do to get rid of that feeling, I'm going to get rid of that feeling as soon as possible. Because really, hungers and desires that go unmet have this kind of suffering to them. And gluttony, it moves in and says, you don't have to feel this anymore. In gluttony, we end up learning nothing of desire's true ends. And one of the things we've said about each of these sins is that they are disordered desire. It's never to say, like, you're not supposed to feel this thing, whether it's, uh, like, this need for passion and connection that gets disordered in lust or this sense of justice that we feel that gets disordered into anger that never is satiated. Like, each of these is something that was created as good, but then over time, we cannot figure out how to aim our desires well. And so sin, it's like retrenching this dead ground that leads our desires into the place of death of disconnection and isolation. We find ourselves lonely in the midst of this kind of behavior. The virtuous life, which is the one we are leaning into, the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, it says that there is a new way to cut channels for desire, not to quell them, but to understand them at a deeper level. And the correct love of this world, the love of ourselves, the love of God, the love of our neighbor, it sort of plows new ground for desire to flow in new directions. Gluttony teaches us nothing about desires, true ends. Gluttony, in fact, it numbs us at the source. It says you don't have to feel this thing. You don't have to learn anything from what's happening inside of you. You don't need to open yourself up. There is something that is offered by Jesus... And in our own practices here as a church community, not unique to us, but we're part of this for all communions around the world, and that's the table. So once a month in our congregation, we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever language it is you're familiar with, the common table. And in a lot of ways, this is the way that we reorder our desires, our eating practices around consumption. We're going to use the language in a minute of remembering well. Jesus says, like, when you eat this food or when you drink this drink, remember me. But that remembrance language, it goes deeper than that. Because there's so much in life that dismembers us. And disordered eating is one of the things that sort of tears us apart. It tears us apart from community or from ourselves. It creates a kind of self-loathing often. I want to ask the question of who in here has had a season where food has been an enemy. Either because you can't stop eating Because that was the thing that made the pain stop for a little bit. Or created distance from you and from the rest of the world. Or maybe it's the opposite of that sort of taking everything in, which is taking nothing in. Kind of anorexia or bulimia or these eating disorders. All of these are disordered forms of eating. And we know, a lot of us know, if it's not us, it's somebody we're connected to who feels this kind of pain. Multiple times a day, we are submitting to our fragility to say we need something here that we can't provide for ourselves, and so we reach out. But often in that reaching out, there is a lot of pain and that dismemberment that happens. And so when we come to this table and we eat with some kind of intention, which is really the point of this table, is to teach us how to eat, how to consume well across the rest of our lives. That this practice remembers us back together, re-knits us back together in all the ways that we've been pulled apart. So the early church takes up this practice of communion, the Lord's Supper, and things do not go well. It doesn't take very long before the Lord's table becomes another opportunity for gluttony. So I'm going to read for you out of 1 Corinthians 11 we can start in verse 17. We're going to go to, I think, verse 29. Now, this is Paul, one of the early teachers of the church, talking to one of these Christian communities in the town of Corinth. This is a church community that's kind of blossomed in this area, and they're having some problems. Because that's what happens when you get two, three, four more people together, call it a church, you have some problems. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For, to begin with, when you come together as an assembly, as an ecclesia, as a church. I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. By the way, he sounds really snarky. Paul is so snarky. To some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there are and have to be factions among you. For only so will it become clear who is genuine. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. And one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. That would be really weird if that happened here today. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup and after supper he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever... Therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable to the body and blood of Christ. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. I'm just going to read that last part again. Examine yourselves and then eat the bread and drink the cup for all who drink And eat without discerning, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. No pressure, friends. But in like 10 minutes, we're going to figure out if you accidentally eat yourself into judgment. So maybe take a minute and reflect and examine yourselves. Something has gone wrong in this Christian community where this meal that was prepared for them has turned into another occasion for their isolation. The early church communities were these chances for people together gather under the story of Christ, the promise of new life, that things don't have to continue like they have been for so long. The place of our commonality and our belonging and what happens right there, right at this instance, this practice is the fracturing. The way that they are eating the meal is gluttony. And the reason you know it is because it is lonely eating. It says it right there in the text. When you get together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And when you are eating, there is not togetherness and knitting, but there is fracturing. Schism is the Greek word. Pulling apart. And so the point is perverted at the source. This is the tragedy of gluttony is that it takes the occasion for our togetherness. And if you've ever shared a meal with people you really care about, you understand the power of a shared table. It takes that and it twists it. It says the only person that really matters at this table is me and what I can get out of this experience. The way that we consume is often broken because it's often born out of disordered desires and an inability to sustain the pain of living in this world so fragile. Let me talk to you about gluttony and what it looks like at the table with two instances, one from my own family, uh, and because it's the experience I have, and then one from the South during the civil rights. Um, I've mentioned before, so I'll just say this shortly. Uh, In my family, we had a very segregated table. My family's from Mississippi. And so when we would come together and we would eat, uh, it was predicated on keeping certain people apart. I didn't know this when I was young. You just eat wherever you eat, and I ate at the kids' table until I was old enough to eat at the adult table. You only got to eat at the adult table when someone died and left a seat open. And so that's always kind of interesting. You don't know whose seat you're going to get until, you're, you're oh, you're in their seat. Uh, you get to behave like them. But everyone who cooked the meal, along with the, the family, were the help and when i say the help you need to think about the movie the help and then like that's what we grew up with uh and they would cook uh aunt Jessie may would make chicken pot pie and i've said before no one got her recipe so once those family members started to die we lost access to that kind of cooking but Jessie may was a black woman from across the tracks and after she cooked she would disappear never ate with us i will say that sin was always present at our table and I say that as a kind of confession. There was also lots of love at that table and lots of attempts at being the people of God. But at the root of it, especially if you're from the South, there is always the sin of our separation present in all gatherings where God's people are not one. And to send one of God's sisters back across the tracks with no table, right, no seat at the table is a kind of gluttony that was always present because our eating was a sign of our separation. And it's one that I've spent a lot of my life trying to figure out how to heal from. This is not unique to my family. This is a part, this is a function of the way tables often work. Where they are not occasions of invitation, but they are often opportunities to show off who doesn't belong because of manners, because of traditions, or whatever. So there's a group of, of men who decided that they wanted to eat at the lunch counter at Woolworth's in North Carolina. And they were not allowed to eat at the lunch counter. So they decided that they would peacefully sit down and wait to be served. Now, they didn't just head in there, right? There were seasons of preparation of wilderness training that they went through to be ready for this moment, but they sat down to receive a meal. Because the eating in that region was disordered. There were certain people who were not allowed at the table. When you come together, it is not for the better, but it is for the worse. And when you eat, you do not discern the body present at the table, but you eat judgment upon yourself. And these are the words that these men spoke with their bodies when they sat down at the lunch counter, that there is sin present at this meal. And we are here to be public confessors of that sin and to call everyone into repentance. This is the act at the center of the struggle for equal rights at that time. It is a work that is still going on. It turns out that a table where some are not welcome is a table where Jesus is not welcome. When we find that our actions, that our vices, that our sins are separating us one from another, the pain of that is that we are often Always isolating ourselves from Christ Himself, present in the one we cannot call friend, but only name as enemy. Their eating at that counter was a form of suffering, a suffering for and with the world. And it was painful, quite bodily painful. Gluttony it masks the pain of this suffering turns out that suffering is itself a connective tissue. It binds us to one another and to all of creation that suffers. Paul says elsewhere that creation is groaning in expectation for the redemption of all. Ignoring this suffering, it makes us lonely. It cuts us off from our own self-understanding and from linking up with the suffering of the world. says... In Luke's gospel later on, when Jesus sits down to have the meal, says that he eagerly desires to eat with them. It's from Luke 22 When the hour came, he took his place at the table, and with the apostles who were with him, he said to them, "I have craved, I have hungered, I have epithumos right? This sort of ravenous hunger to eat this meal with you before I suffer." Present at the table is not an ignorance of the pain, but it is a welcoming of it. It's an understanding and a knitting it together with the possibility that the pain will not be forever. Jesus craves the meal with suffering at the door, embraces it. there are traitors at the table. There are enemies at the table. But he knows that there's possibility that the table might in fact be a kind of glue. And so we're going to practice sharing the table together today. And the same words that Jesus shares at that first meal and the words that Paul shares as it was handed on to him, I'm handing it on to you. We're going to come together to the table. And in whatever way possible, going to discern the body of Christ here at the table. in the presence of Christ in one another here at the table. Allow as much as possible for this meal to knit us together again. To reorder our desires and the practices of consumption. Here's one of the things that we're going to do to reorder ourselves. Um, our board of deacons had a conversation last week about a practice that we want to reinstitute around here. It's been in our tradition off and on throughout the years. Um, but we have this fund called the Deacon Fund or the Emergency Community Needs Fund where anyone in our community congregation are attached to you who has a need that we can be responsive to that there's money set aside just for that it doesn't go into regular operating budget we don't have to choose do we make sure that so and so has lights on this week or do we pay our own light bill this is a separate fund and the way that typically this thing gets funded is just people generously give quietly in the background Um, but we're going to keep these plates up here each first Sunday of the month at communion. And we're going to ask if you feel compelled to, to give a sort of second offering or an extra offering into this deacon fund, knowing that the way that it gets used is to turn us loose for the world. Um, to consume well without gluttony present is to know that what you receive is a gift so that you can then pass it back on. It isn't stingy. It isn't hoarding. Uh, it's open-handed. And I think this practice, it sort of keeps that flow moving. Even as we move forward to receive from Christ, we are passing back on into the world the love of Christ. So that practice is here. There's going to be there's a, an offering plate at the front of this right here and then over here for each section. All right, well, let me tell you a little bit about how communion is going to go, and then I'm going to invite our deacons up to the front. By the way, deacons, staff, if you are serving and you haven't washed your hands in the last 15 minutes, you are dismissed for a couple of minutes to go wash your hands. Um, I've washed my hands no less than four times. And I say that because we are all in the midst of this like potential global pandemic, and we should at least be aware and have good practices around it. Uh, so... The folks who prepared the food today, uh, which were some of our youth, some of our adult volunteers and staff, uh, they had like food safe gloves that they were able to use to prepare the food. Um, everyone who's going to be serving today, nobody is sick or ill, and we all will have just washed our hands. The way that we practice communion here is by um, cracker and then juice. It's not like dipping, there's not a common cup. And so you will come forward and, and the person presiding will hand you a cracker. Now, their hand is clean. So it's OK. The other option would be for each one of you to dig in the candy bowl and touch every cracker and then until you find the one you like. And then all of your neighbors also touch every cracker. So um, that's how we're going to practice communion. It's an open table. Uh, if you have been at this church for a while, this table is for you. If you are visiting for the first Sunday, we would love to share this meal with you. Um, if you are not sure where you are in your walk with God, but you are trying to discern the spirit and the body of Christ, at this table is for you. If you are carrying something that is heavy, burdensome, and is weighing you down, I'm going to ask you to set it down. Leave it where you are. And try as much as possible to embrace a posture of vulnerability so that you can receive what is on offer here. So, I'm going to ask the deacons and our staff to come up to the front here as we prepare to share the meal. And I'll share the words again with you. It was on the night when Jesus was to suffer, handed over to suffering and death, that he took bread in an upper room with his friends and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. So take and eat. And as often as you do, remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So take and drink. And as often as you do, remember me. And so it is that whenever we gather with intention to share the breaking of bread, the possibility of connection, we proclaim the Lord's death and hope of resurrection until he comes again. Friends, will you pray with me? God, may this food feed us in ways that we are truly hungry. May this meal cut channels for desire to flow to their true ends. May all that we carry be left behind so that we can pick up a much lighter burden of your love and affection for us and for this world. So forgive us, God. For all that we have done and left undone. Forgive us, God, for all of our eating that has been disordered, that has fractured us, that has left us lonely. And thank you that the table is set again. And for every table that you set that we attend to, we proclaim your presence and the possibilities therein. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Final instruments as we prepared I've had gluttony's cure, which is both feasting and fasting. The cure for gluttony is not to deprive yourself of food or of satiation, but to hold off long enough to understand what those cravings are really about. and that's the bit about fasting. It's to quiet down, to slow down, to let stillness enter in. Ask the question, what is it that I'm hungry for in this moment? And then feasting is in fact desire's true end. True food, true drink, true togetherness. Where all are welcome. That's why every parable that Jesus tells, so many of them are about a wedding banquet. This moment when all the friends and family are brought in, and when they can't make it, then folks are just brought in from all over the streets. You start to see this picture emerge of what is possible There's a book by uh, William Cavanaugh called Being Consumed. I just want to read one section for you about how consumption is reordered in God's world. It says, consumerism is a restless spirit that is never content with any particular material thing. In this sense, consumerism has some affinities with like Christian asceticism, which counsels a certain detachment from material things. The difference is that in consumerism, Detachment continually moves us from one product to another. You could even say sometimes from one church to another until you find the product that best suits your needs. Whereas in the Christian life, this asceticism is a means to a greater attachment to God and to other people. We are consumers in the Eucharist, in the Lord's table, but in consuming the body of Christ, we are transformed into the body of Christ drawn into the divine life by communion with one another. We consume the Eucharist, but we are thereby consumed by God. One early church writer said that Jesus is the food that consumes us. And that's also part of what's happening here, is we are, in some mysterious way, being pulled together into the communion of God. And it changes us. So no longer is our consumption the means by which we strip the world of its blessing, but it is the possibility that we can become part of that blessing. It turns us into living Eucharists where we offer our bodies broken open for the world and our blood poured out for the world. We enter into the world's suffering with the world and we stay there promising the hope of new life. Fasting is what I started with today and talked about how this practice stills us. These are often known as like contemplative practices and some people are better at them than others. I've told you I'm not very good at them. And for a lot of folks, they're misunderstood as a way to become holier. But that's not actually what these contemplative practices do at their source. If you don't read On Being or listen to Krista Tippett's podcast, you should. They just started a new poetry one that's quite beautiful. But there was a there was a story that they wrote about communion that was offered at the streets in Eastern Europe during a, an uprising in civil violence and the priest would stand in the city square with full vestments on offering communion both to the police who were brutalizing the protesters both sides it's this really strange moment of togetherness in the midst of deep separation and it says that contemplative practice is not the domain of the lazy priest or the indolent monk living a contemplative life it means guarding against undue stresses and frenetic activity but a life that is contemplative is not just a life lived at ease Though relaxation, poise, the quelling of free-floating anxiety can be byproducts of a deep contemplative practice. These are not the goals. On the contrary, the contemplative is a soldier. In her practice, preparation for and certainty of face-to-face confrontation with evil. These are where the practices lead us. The contemplative runs from the distractions of the world only to be exposed to the clamor of evil and sin in the quiet of stillness and the light of an unwavering gaze to confront there the enemy face to face as in a mirror. In other words, she meets the enemy that's in her own heart. Now, if the clandestine enemies of this world are greed and hatred and envy and strife and murder and apathy and corruption and partiality and rapaciousness and so on, then we need only sit down quietly To find them. This sitting down and facing them is the prophetic action of the true contemplative. She's not playing games, not running away, not trying to be spiritual or make a show of things. She is merely responding to the imperative of the world, and by doing so, taping deep social action by remaining still. I will fight for you, proclaims the Lord. You only have to be still. Some Christians believe that the more they do, the more apparent God's kingdom will be, as though God's kingdom somehow depends on them. This is why sin and strife are such a great tragedy, because the banquet is laid before us while we starve beneath the table, curled up and closed mouth. Be filled, and then you will become food for the world. I know... How gluttony works, because gluttony is one of the things I most have to work with and work on. Because I hate feeling pain. I hate feeling suffering. It's just not the way that I'm wired. I would much rather be full of joy and possibility and exuberance. But sometimes things just hurt. And when they hurt, I often try to mask it and numb it. And it cuts me off. Cuts me off at the legs from my own heart. And from connections to those around me. And so when I still myself, I can feel the ache. And in feeling the ache, I begin to understand it. And I can invite God into it and invite others into it. Some of you have been those others for me. Gluttony says there is food and there is nothing else, feasting and fasting. Attentiveness to our hungers. It says that there is food and that there is everything else. Would you pray with me? God, what would you teach us by our acts of eating and drinking to the consumptive practices at work in our lives? What would you teach us by the way you have made us to be so hungry and thirsty all of the time? Not just for food and drink, but also for those but for connection, for a balm to loneliness. For those you've made to crave justice, what does this mean? And how do we still ourselves long enough to understand them? God, I admit that I don't like being this way. I would much rather be self-sufficient and have it all together. And yet here we are. So if this is how you have made us, dust and ashes then you will have to be with us because the pain of this world can be overwhelming and for many of us we would rather escape but you are our true food and we do not belong to ourselves but we belong to this world that you love so we will hold our hungers with tenderness and compassion till they find their true ends. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.